Well, I'm guessing that you and your family probably have certain Christmas traditions that you try to do every single year, whether that's the time of the day or evening when you open gifts or some particular food that you eat. Um, One of the annual Christmas traditions that uh, I have with my Wednesday morning growth group is the last growth group before Christmas, we exchange white elephant gifts. And so what happens is everyone brings in a white elephant gift that's wrapped. There's no name or no labels on them. And then we play a game um, to determine who opens and when they get to pick which gift that they want. And frankly, I'm kind of sad that this year, because of COVID, we're not going to be able to do this white elephant gift exchange because it's always a lot of fun, not only to play the game, but even more fun to see what people are opening. And I'm guessing if you've done a white elephant uh, gift exchange like that in the past, uh, maybe it's that or some other things that your annual traditions maybe aren't going to happen exactly the way that they have in the past because people aren't gathering as much as they normally would. So I thought that because many of us, especially me, aren't able to do white elephant gifts that I'd look online to see what are the hot white elephant gifts for 2020 that no one is buying because no one's supposed to be gathering. But anyway, so let me share a couple with you. For the person who loves to look out the window at nature, but can easily get bored and need some laughter as they do it, you can get the big head squirrel feeder where you put the squirrel feed inside the head and watch and laugh as the squirrel goes in there. And it's a great photo op for those squirrels. Um, Or how about this one that I found, you know, if you love to cook and you often wonder, I wonder what Snoop Dogg is cooking. Um, you can buy his new cookbook called From Crook to Cook and find out exactly what Snoop Dogg... I don't know why you'd want to, but anyway. Or how about for you Bob Ross fans out there, you know, the painter with the big hair? Have you ever wanted to have a board game all about Bob Ross? You can buy and give the Art of Chill game, um, Bob Ross. And and lastly, um, have you ever had it where... You saw a cat, maybe you own a cat, and you thought, hmm, I wonder what sort of crafts I could make out of the cat's hair. If you've ever thought that, there's a book called Crafting with Cat Hair. Um, Cute handicrafts to make with your cat. I don't, I think all of these actually are real things and real gifts and (laughs) would definitely be fun in some sort of white elephant gift exchange. Now, when it comes to white elephant gifts, here's the thing. They're all unwrapped. You've got all these boxes in front of you. You're not sure what's in them and it's your choice to decide which box you're going to pick. And what I've noticed over the years is that most people tend to pick the box that is either the biggest or the one that is the best decorated. You always tend to, if you have the chance, you you tend to pick the biggest, the shiniest, and the best. And I think this tends to happen not just in white elephant gift exchanges, but in almost every area of life. In fact, I'm going to say it this way, that we naturally gravitate towards choosing 
the best available if we can afford it. And sometimes, even if we can't afford it, right? The most expensive, the most reliable, the, the most well-known, the biggest, the shiniest, the best. And really, there's nothing wrong with that. It actually makes sense to pick the best. But at least from an outward perspective, here's what I want you to recognize and realize, because it has absolute application to our lives and understanding of God, that God doesn't always follow that pattern of picking outwardly the biggest, the shiniest, the best. And for some of you who are watching online or in the room, you can think back through history, biblical history, and there are tons of examples of this. For those of you who are new to the Bible, let me point a few of them out. Thousands of years ago, God needed someone to share a very difficult message with the king of Egypt. You know who he picked? A stutterer, someone who couldn't speak very well, named Moses. And then years later, he was to pick the most powerful king of Israel. And God decided to pick the one son of Jesse that even his dad thought would not be the right pick, the scrawny shepherd boy named David. And then when Jesus, or when God, I should say, needed someone to go give a message of judgment on the people of Nineveh, he he picked a guy who ran away from God in fear and depression instead of answering the call of God. His name was Jonah. And then you look at the New Testament and you think about the people that, that Jesus picked to be his 12 disciples. Man, it was a ragtag group of misfits from a worldly perspective. You've got the despised tax collector named Matthew. You have a guy who definitely needed some anger management direction named Peter. You've got a bunch of fishermen who had no power and no prestige. These were the majority of the people that God, that Jesus chose to be a part of his 12 disciples, his closest friends. And then after Jesus died and rose again, who did he pick to be the greatest missionary in the first century? A guy named Paul, who had been the greatest persecutor of Christians before he became the greatest missionary, an evangelist, maybe that ever lived. You see, God in his wisdom and his knowledge, he sees things we don't see. He knows things that we don't know. And our first fill-in is really true when it comes to how God acts, that the best choice for something, the best choice may not always be the obvious choice, again, because God sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know. And kind of a side application to this, because we're going to talk more about it in a different arena in our message. I think this helps us recognize and realize that when we pray for something that seems to be the answer we're praying for so obvious to us, and it's not what God gives to us, or it's not how God answers that prayer, I just want you to realize that this is true, that the best choice is not always the obvious choice. And instead, I want us in our prayer life, when we're asking God for things that are strong in our hearts, to recognize the heart of God 
Here's what Jesus said about God's answering prayers in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no loving dad would do that. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? No one would. If you then, though you are evil, though you are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the reason why his answer isn't always what we're asking for is because sometimes the best choice is not always the obvious choice. And that was the case in the first Christmas as well. Today, we're looking at an unexpected audience. And that's really what it was. The first group of people, the first audience to receive the message that Jesus had been born. If you or I were going to write the script of how Christmas would go, I think we would have very unlikely have chosen this group to receive it. So we're going to look at some familiar, very familiar Christmas verses from Luke chapter two. In fact, some of you online or in the room might be able to actually recite them as I read them. Luke chapter two, verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Who were the recipients of the very first announcement that Jesus had been born? It's highlighted. It was the shepherds. Let's, let's talk about the shepherds a little bit. Um, they probably are prominent enough that they find a place as figurines in your nativity set. But how much have you really thought about the shepherds? How much do you know about first century shepherds? I think most of the time when we think of the Bible and shepherding and sheep, we either think of probably the most famous chapter in the Bible, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Or maybe we think about how Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And as I thought about the reality of first century shepherds and then thought about how Jesus made a point to not just call himself the shepherd, but the good shepherd, I think you're gonna see that Jesus was very strategic in making sure that people understood that when he called himself the shepherd, that he needed to put the word good in front of it. Because at this time, shepherds did not have a great reputation. In fact, one of the things we know about shepherds is that they were social outcasts. No one grew up wanting to be shepherds. It was a difficult life and also a despised one. You kind of fell into being shepherds. It was dirty, It was a 24-7 job where you literally slept and lived with the sheep. And it didn't pay well either. And I think because of that, shepherds were also often in the first century known to be, well, not trustworthy. In fact, in rabbinic law, it's just this weird law 
but it made sense if you lived back then. In rabbinic law, no shepherd was allowed to testify in court. Talk about profiling, huh? It wouldn't have gone over very well today, right? Because they were known to be not trustworthy. In general, shepherds were And so they were misfits and outcasts. Uh, Some have said that they were lumped into the same groups as, you know how we have that phrase, tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, that shepherds were right there with that group. The other thing about shepherds is that they were religious outcasts. And this in part had to do with their jobs. So they were with the sheep all the time, which meant that when it came to big religious festivals like the Passover or Yom Kippur or other festivals like that, they were not able to go, which meant that they weren't able to give sacrifices, which meant that they were considered by the religious elite to be unclean all the time, were considered to be far from God. Shepherds had labels and they were considered to be outcasts. And yet, and yet when God chose the first audience to hear that the Savior had been born, he didn't pick the Pharisees. He didn't pick the chief priests. He didn't pick some political leaders in Rome or in Israel. The people he chose to have an angel appear to them were the shepherds. And I think, I think the reason is that God was giving us an object lesson. That we read in verse 10 that the angel said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy or cause great joy for all people. And instead of that just being words that the Savior was for all people, including the outcasts and the sinners and the tax collectors and prostitutes and even the shepherds, instead of just having that be in words, he showed it by elevating shepherds to a position of receiving that first message. It leads to our second fill-in for today, that Jesus came at Christmas for all people, including the outcast. And if you're someone listening today that is just starting to learn a little bit about Jesus and about the Bible, and maybe you felt like you need to clean up your act first before God would love you, I want you to know that Jesus came for people like me too, and like all of us that don't have our acts cleaned up. That is exactly why he came. And we're going to talk more about that as we continue. But it was an unexpected choice, but it was a good one, those shepherds. And here's why. Even though I work in church, I would say that when I look at the Pharisees or I look at the shepherds, when I look at the religious elite or I look at the lowly shepherds, on most days I feel like I can relate more to the struggles of the shepherd than the religious elite. I think about how the shepherds, because of all of these labels, probably didn't feel very good about themselves. I mean, of course, as men, they probably put on a good front and a good face. But if you were to get them alone and really dig into how they're feeling, it never feels good to have bad labels put on you. 
And I think a lot of times in life, we don't always feel good about ourselves either. Whether it's a, a low self-esteem about things that we wish we were better at or some way that we wish we looked differently or maybe even more seriously, promises we've made to people, maybe even to God, maybe to ourselves, that we continually break. You've heard me say that we're not even the people we want to be, much less the people that God wants us to be. I can relate to shepherds not feeling very good about themselves. I also see in the shepherds uh, a little bit of a temptation that I have, and maybe you do too, where we can fill our lives so full with things that we almost eliminate God being an important part of our schedules and our calendars. The, the shepherds were always working. They were always in the field. They couldn't get to the temple. They didn't do the sacrifices that were part of that Old Testament law. They were so busy in their lives that they so often made it difficult to have God be a big part of it. And I think, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that as well. I'm so glad that God chose shepherds to receive this message because I can relate to the shepherds. And it says that God, that the angel brought good news. See, the, the heart of Christmas is good news for the outcast, is good news for the shepherd, is good news for you and for me. I think sometimes that gets lost. Let me give you an example. Uh, about a week ago or so, uh, I had a chance to go to uh, uh, Sam's Christmas Village in Somerset. It's uh, this huge display of lights. It takes about an hour and a half to walk through and, or drive through. And uh, I would highly recommend it. Really cool to do on a Christmas evening. But one of the curious things I noticed is that you, you walk through this village an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it might be. And there's so many things to look at. There's, there's big lit up gifts and big, huge light bulbs. They have reindeer. There's a Santa. Um, there's huge Christmas trees and um, lit up you know, boats and a whole bunch of stuff. And then at the very end, at the very end, there's a nativity scene. And... I thought about that for a moment and I wondered to myself, okay, so if we brought someone who had no idea about 21st century American Christmas, brought them just to Sam's and had them at the end share, what is Christmas all about? What's the point of Christmas? I think they would have had a very hard time answering what the point of Christmas is. And then I thought, you know what, Sam's is a great go. I encourage it. But I think it's reflective of our lives as well during Christmas. If someone watched us for the month leading up to Christmas, would they be able to recognize what Christmas is all about or who Christmas is all about? 
or by the way we schedule our lives and the things we give priority to, would it be about a whole bunch of other things? Um, the way that I'd like to say it today is that the heart of Christmas is good news, not to-dos. And I realize there are some to-dos. I'm not saying that you should just crumple up the to-do list and just you know, mail it in. Husbands, don't do that. But what I also want to say is I am giving you permission to not have the outwardly perfect Christmas. I'm giving you permission to not feel guilty about not getting every little thing done on your list. I am encouraging you to make this celebration this year about good news that if someone was watching you and your family on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and the weeks leading up to it, they could clearly identify that it's not about lights and it's not about gifts and it's not about the perfect little family, but it's about a savior, Jesus, who came for outcasts and sinners like me and like you. The heart of Christmas is good news, not to-dos. Let's continue in Luke chapter two. It says, today, here's the good news. In the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is gonna be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The good news of Christmas is a savior that has come to change our lives and our eternities. And the question is, as you think about that savior, as you think about what God gave, do you have great joy? Good news of great joy. You know, one of the things I found, I found this, that the depth of our joy is directly connected to the depth of our need. And to say this a different way, in order to have great joy, sometimes we have to recognize just how big our need is. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say that you are at Antlers Park over here on the beach and it's a beautiful summer day. I'm sorry for you know, putting those thoughts in your mind right now because man, it would be nice to be summer. Anyway, and you're on the beach, it's beautiful. You're looking out in the lake and about 200 yards out on Lake Marion, this, a boat like this goes by. And amidst all the things going on and all the boats that are on Lake Marion, I, I'm guessing you probably won't even recognize, you won't, probably don't even notice this boat as it goes by. Let me give you a different scenario. Let's say that you're in the water in the middle of Lake Michigan and you've been doggy paddling for an hour and you're about to give up. You're about to go under. You're about to die. And then you look out and coming directly towards you is this. Same boat. In that scenario, this is probably one of the most beautiful things you could ever see because you had great need. Number three, fill in. 
Great joy revolves, results from an understanding of great need. I think that's another thing about the shepherds. They understood their need for a savior. They knew they didn't have everything together. They understood how much they needed Jesus. And they had a humility about them, I'm sure. Whether they wanted to admit it or not. This season, this year has been a really difficult one, I know. But I hope that we're wise enough to get out of it a very important lesson. That we are not as big and as self-sufficient and as powerful and as well put together as we might've thought we were a year ago. That whether it be the control over our circumstances in life and even more importantly, the ability to be the perfect person that God requires, there is so much out of our control and spending some time just recognizing how little we are and how little control we have is a great part of this year, an important part. In fact, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he also shared these words. He wrote about who a blessed person is. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the depressed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the people who recognize their weaknesses and they're not as great as what they would like people to think. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you recognize your frailty and your inability to be as good as you want to be, you're in the perfect position to recognize and understand your need, not for a life raft, but for a savior. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Not some sort of, again, you know, worldly power, but instead, again, pointing ahead towards the reality of a kingdom that we get to enjoy, all those who trust in Jesus rather than themselves. One of the greatest things we can come away from this year And one of the things I'm sure was way easier for the shepherds than it would have been the Pharisees is a heart posture of humility and understanding that we're not as great on our own as we thought we were or that we need to be, but that's okay. Because at Christmas, God didn't send us a mechanic and he didn't send us a financial planner and he didn't send us a computer specialist. At Christmas, he sent us what we needed the most, a life raft, a savior. He is Christ the Lord. Verse 13. Suddenly, a great company, a whole bunch of angels of the heavenly host appeared with the one angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Verse 15. When the angels had left them, had left the shepherds and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. 
So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And so the shepherds, they see thousands of angels in the sky. They hear this amazing announcement. They're told about the baby being born. They run to Bethlehem. I don't know what they did with the sheep. Probably just left them, I guess. I don't know. But they ran to Bethlehem. They checked it out. They saw Mary, the Joseph, and they saw the baby named Jesus. And then what? And that's what I want to conclude with today. Then what? They saw all these things. They saw the great joy. Then what? It continues. Verse 17. When they had seen him, they went back to work because someone had to pay off the holiday credit card bill. Or maybe that's how Americans respond to Christmas so easily. Well, that was good. That was nice. Now we got them bills to pay. And we got to go back to work. And yes, we do need to go back to work. But what is going to be our response to the greatest news there ever could be? Here's what it really says. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning about what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They just received the greatest news that the outcast had hope that there was a savior for them, that the religious leaders may not accept them, but that God does through this baby. And even though they couldn't understand all of it, not yet, I'm sure, they went out and they told other people what had happened. What are we using our lives for? How are we going to respond, yes, to Christmas, but to the message of Jesus changing our our lives? The older I get, the more I come to realize something that I was told, but that you don't really know until you experience it. And that's this, that life is short and that all the things that I spent or we spend so much time going after that have a shelf life, and end with this life tend to find less and less importance in my mind and in my heart. Oh yes, I enjoy life and things just like you do, and that's okay. But I'm recognizing is that all the things that I thought were so important and that I so needed, they don't fill the hole and they don't bring the joy that maybe we thought they once would. You see, even more important than that is to recognize this truth, that everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. And during this time that we have in this life, we have an opportunity to respond to lives changed by sharing that message with other people. Or I'll put it this way for number four, come and see, then go and tell. 
Come and see, then go and tell. You see, there's no greater opportunity we have with our lives than to make an eternal difference in someone else's life. And so I'm going to put it on your heart like we've done before, and I'm going to do it again sometime, or Pastor Matt will, and that is this. Who are you going to tell? Who is it at work, in your neighborhood, at school, that you're pretty sure doesn't know who Jesus is, doesn't understand the good news of the gospel? When is it that we're going to take that step from just thinking about it or praying for them and actually having a conversation? The shepherds could not stop speaking about the change that they were going to experience because of Jesus. Who are we going to tell? Or how about this? Who are you going to invite to come to Christmas with you? There's a blank on your sermon notes page. That's what the blank is for. I'd love for you to put a name, put a family name. The cool thing is this year, the people that you can invite don't even have to live in Minnesota or the Twin Cities. It could be all across the country. Someone you know, you had a work experience with them 10 years ago and you've kept in touch, kind of. They need Jesus. You invite them to watch Christmas with North Cross on the 23rd or the 24th. We have this amazing opportunity. Who are you going to invite to come with you to Christmas with North Cross? In fact, as registrations are pretty much full already. Here's what my pledge to you. If there's someone you want to invite that doesn't know Jesus, you just email me and we'll find room for them. Let me know who it is and we'll make sure that they get to come with you. They get to hear about their savior. Throughout this series, we've been coming into connection with things about Christmas that if God had asked me to write the story, I probably wouldn't have chosen. But I'm so glad Jesus chose the shepherds. And there's so much that we're able to learn as we see God giving that good news of a savior to them. And now may we respond just like they did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the ability to learn from it, uh, to grow on our understanding of what's important, what Christmas is about, and our ability and, I guess, opportunity to respond. I pray that as we come to be renewed in the reality of the good news of Christmas, that we would respond with lives changed and that we would spend some time considering and then taking a step to share that good news with someone we know. There's nothing more important that we could spend our life on or our lives for than sharing that simple but life-changing message with someone. And so I, I pray for your blessing upon the listeners and upon their consideration and considering of who it is they might invite to hear about you. We pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.